Good evening, and welcome to Wait Fright Minutes. I am your haunted host, Nick D'Alessandro. This season on Wait Fright Minutes, we are talking about haunted stories from Florida swamps and the incredible things that happen when you turn Florida's stories into horror pictures. This week, we are talking about one of my favorite subgenres in horror history, regional filmmaking, when artists were making scary movies in Florida's swamps in order to fill out the schedules of drive-ins and other small theaters. Some incredible and influential horror movies were made in this era, and I am glad to be able to tell you about them this week. But first, I'd like to tell you a ghost story. They say there are ghosts on Cape Canaveral. In the same place where human beings have defied all expectation and launched into the solar system, it's no surprise that the supernatural may occur out there, especially when you consider the history. Cape Canaveral has been the launching site for so many of our nation's scientific feats, but lives were lost on that same site 56 years ago. The first Apollo mission, Apollo 1, it was only meant to be a test, but things went very, very wrong. A fire broke out during a rehearsal and the capsule ignited, killing all three occupants, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger B. Chaffee. To honor their sacrifice and their tragic loss, they designated that mission as Apollo 1, a grim reminder to all involved in the mission to the moon how dire things could get if anything went wrong. Many of these astronauts had been through Mercury and Gemini space programs, but Apollo was meant to be the missions to the moon, and everything was at stake. Losing the first three Apollo astronauts was a profound loss, and they would soon dismantle the launching pad where Apollo 1 took place. Apollo 7 was the last mission to launch from the launch complex 34, and afterwards they would take the structure apart save for the launch pedestal, today a grim sort of concrete Stonehenge where the accident occurred. The lost men are commemorated, plaques telling the story and their names, as well as a plaque that says the iconic NASA slogan, Ad Astra Perispera, a Latin phrase meaning through hardship to the stars, a necessary reminder of what the Apollo team lost that eventually led them to the moon. But if you look up images of Launch Complex 34, you feel an unnatural sense of dread. It's far from the friendly historic launch pads at the Kennedy Space Center. It feels empty and sad and distant. And though it's mostly outdoors, you will find the hallmarks of a haunted house from those who tell stories after a visit. Feelings of dread and sadness creep up on you when you approach, according to visitors, and strange sounds can be heard. Some people say they can hear screams. It's not exactly a draw out there, so some accounts say that this area is often quite empty, and when you know the story of what happened here, it's easy to avoid. Just the heartbreaking story is enough to drive you away, but the haunted feeling of loss must be profound, even if NASA has never acknowledged the ghost stories officially. Just as all ghost stories, it comes down to personal anecdotes, and those who visit are quite unsettled by the old launch pad. They haven't made a movie out of that story yet, but Cape Canaveral has captured the imagination of horror filmmakers in the past, so it's only a matter of time. One horror film, our feature presentation today, came out even before the first manned mission to space from the United States launched in 1961. This movie came out in 1960. It's our feature presentation this week. Cape Canaveral Monsters, the story of aliens that can possess the body of dead humans. They arrived to Florida, Cape Canaveral, in order to prevent the rocket launches from Cape Canaveral successfully reaching space. We've talked about this many times before, but in the years after World War II, Cape Canaveral became a naval and eventual air force base. There's actually a space force base now. 
There, they would launch and test rockets and missiles through the 50s and eventually suborbital rockets starting in 1956. NASA wouldn't even be formed until 1958, but rockets were launched from our Atlantic coast long before then. People knew that Canaveral was the place where rockets were shooting to the stars. Eventually, our manned space programs would launch there, but this movie didn't wait around for the interesting stuff. This movie didn't take place when NASA was launching humans into space in rockets. No. They were interested in just general rocket launches, I guess. Instead, these aliens possessing people would use sort of a big magnet thing, and they would crash the rockets themselves, preventing the humans from advancing their technological progress. Their alien overlords would insist they keep the rockets from reaching space, and the aliens would just go on to possess more and more people. It is a ridiculous and insane movie, free to watch. Clearly, the Canaveral launches had captured something in the public consciousness, even if the movie they made was wasn't very good. I watched it, so you don't have to. It's sort of Invasion of the Body Snatchers without any of the good parts, a movie about distinguishing other people from enemies, a sort of allegory for the Red Scare. The space race stuff just adds to that feeling, the idea that there are people that can look like regular people, but actually they're the enemy and they're here to prevent us from reaching space. It, it was all part of public fears at that time, reflected into a very silly, classic, pulpy science fiction madhouse movie. It would have only been better if it was actually filmed in Florida. It was set in Florida, but once you start seeing rocky mountains in the distance, or, or rather as central locations for the movie, you realize it's not exactly filmed in our flat peninsula. It was actually, of course, filmed in California. A mistake, in my opinion. But this director was known to film not only in California, but in this specific location. He made pulpy science fiction. It was part of his brand. And the two he is most known for, the two movies that this director is most known for, were filmed in Bronson Canyon, California. Out in the deserts of California, there is a wilderness that may be all too familiar to you, even if you've never visited California. If you've watched enough low-rent science fiction movies, or even if you've watched enough episodes of Star Trek, as I have, you've seen this wilderness before. It's golden and rough, tall mountains and fields that seem to stretch forever, but in reality, they're just a few city blocks. What is obviously just hot California desert can be transformed into an alien planet, an apocalyptic wasteland, or even, in the case of our feature film this week, the state of Florida. <laughs> that location is Bronson Canyon within Los Angeles's iconic Griffith Park. The canyon was originally part of a rock quarry where crushed rocks would be gathered to be used in the streets of the burgeoning city of Los Angeles back at the turn of the century. The rock quarry was eventually left abandoned with huge openings in the rocks left behind by the miners. The mines are craggy caves now, great vacancies in the rock that can be used to create whatever narrative you can imagine. The picture-making industry would soon use the caves to their advantage, giving them an otherworldly setting within the city itself. Now, I've never visited the caves in Bronson Canyon. I have no idea what they look like with my own two eyes. According to reports, it's actually a pretty small spot considering how critical it is to Hollywood history. But I feel like I have been there, not just because I've seen it in so many movies time and again. Just look them up. I promise you've seen them. They're, they're iconic to especially like 1950s and 1960s Hollywood filmmaking. But I've actually seen them in an unusual way. I saw them on a big screen in 3D. The movie I saw them in is called Robot Monster, a 1953 sci-fi disaster of a movie, starring a terrible costumed monster, some 
abysmal performances and a script of mostly nonsense. It's about a group of humans in an apocalyptic world that are being hunted down by a monster that is pretty obviously a guy in a gorilla suit who just sort of bumbles around in Bronson Canyon as they run away from him. It was directed by Phil Tucker, a director who made a career out of directing these low quality flicks, including Cape Canaveral Monsters. Both of them not very good. Robot Monster in particular was devastating for him that it was such a flop and was so disregarded by critics. I think he wanted to make something clearly better and, and there's good ideas, but you know, even filming it in 3D can't exactly save what this movie is all about. But the 3D, it looks great. It's it's fun, it's goofy, it's, it's iconic. But these movies define his legacy and I'm glad to say they still exist for people to watch. What's remarkable to me as a film fan is how much love there is for cheaper flicks like Robot Monster and Cape Canaveral Monsters, myself included. There is a supreme joy in watching movies that were made with passion and not a tremendous amount of skill, and even better when you get to see them in a theater with other passionate film dorks who care about this sort of thing. Because like I said, I got to see Robot Monster in 3D. It was originally made in that red-blue 3D. It was a gimmick like so many we've talked about this season in order to sell tickets, but in the digitization era of years past, the 3D element has been lost. But in recent years, it has been restored and turned back into the classic red-blue 3D glory of its heyday back in the 50s. So as I was packed into a theater on a warm night in July, I was actually given red-blue shades and a bucket of popcorn, and I got to enjoy this absurd movie as it burst from the screen just as it did 70 years ago. And that's because, and thanks to, a little theater in Orlando, the same one I've seen so many classics on film, independent flicks, and so much more. My favorite theater in Orlando. And as the Halloween season approaches, they've got horror movies all month long, but I've had the pleasure of watching their wonderful, magnificent midnight movies for the last few months at an event called Freaky Fridays. It is where I met our guest this week, Tim Anderson. He created Freaky Fridays as a way to celebrate the weird, wild, and wonderful genre pictures of years past. The first one I saw was Robot Monster, which led me to looking up Cape Canaveral Monsters and led me to questions as to why it was not filmed in Florida. But thanks to Tim's knowledge, I learned even more about horror movies in Florida in this era and the glory of regional cinema. Let's meet our guest. I met him in his office, plastered head to toe in movie posters. We had met before at the beginning of September when I went to see a delirious horror movie shot on tape called Cannibal Campout. Lots of gore, terrible production, a great movie watching experience. But I was wearing a t-shirt for the cult horror classic 1986's Chopping Mall, a must watch if you like bad horror movies as I do. He complimented the shirt and I was very proud, but now we were in his office and after I admired the posters, all over his office, we got to chatting. Here is Tim. Yeah, my name is uh, Tim Anderson. I'm programming coordinator at Enzion Theater. How did you get into this field? How did you get in working in programming and working in film? So I, I mean, how I got to working into film is that in college I took video production and things like that, but I was a fine arts major. I majored in oil painting, uh, which is totally useless as a degree. Um, they're kids, whatever you're doing, and your parents tell you like you can't make a living at it. Just like this dude I'm listening to on this podcast, Majored in painting. Um, but, yeah, there was music videos and things like that. I had a lot of friends in bands. I was in bands. So we started shooting music videos for them with, like, three-camera video setup. 
Tim worked all over, writing and even producing for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, sleeping on couches in LA with friends, looking for a place to settle. Soon, he started working a classic event at Enzian, Film Slam, a competition event that features films being made by locals, films being made by students, and they compete against one another. It's a great classic event. It's an Enzian staple, and Tim would work it for years until getting started as a film programmer for Enzian in 2015. So, what is Enzian? I've been going since 2012 when I saw my now favorite movie there for the first time, Moonrise Kingdom, a wonderful film. Independent cinema, like Moonrise Kingdom, is part of what makes Enzian so unique. They're, they show the independent movies that are not often screened at the larger movie theaters, but they also show so much more. Enzian is a nonprofit community art house, mm. so very basic, that's mm. the logline. Um, and what it is, is we're just one of the only independent art house cinemas in Central Florida, period. The next closest thing to us is all the way in Daytona Beach yeah. and then over in Tampa, so, uh, or the surrounding Tampa area. And Enzi was founded in 1985 by Tina Tiki um, as essentially her model of what an art house theater in the kind of the Northeast was like. So if you've ever been into Enzi, it's very unique. It's sort of like a dinner theater. Um, it doesn't have fixed seating. It has tables and chairs. It has a full menu food service. Um, it was actually Tim League when he started Alamo Draft House actually came to Enzian as a, as a place to check out before he actually launched it, and it was in the Sentinel a few years ago, and I think Austin Statesman or something also mentioned it. Um, so in, in the idea in 1985 is it was wildly unique. Um, now there's you know lots of other places, like they, and obviously Draft House is one of them that kind of do similar things. But basically, we are running independent movies. So with an unbelievably, almost incalculable, rare exception, we are playing movies that are owned not by major studios. Right. So the biggest studios that we tend to book a movie out of is going to be A24 or Neon, which is co-owned by Tim League, who owns Draft House. Um, every once in a while, like just recently, we played Bottoms, which was owned by MGM right. uh, slash Orion, which was relaunched. Sure. And it's practically an indie studio right say, now because it, they have very little money. And even Oppenheimer, when you did show Oppenheimer, you were showing it on a unique print. Yeah, Oppenheimer well. is the rare exception where we use big-time Universal Studios. Universal owns sub-companies like Focus Films. We right. play Focus Films, but we've never played... I don't know if we've ever played a film owned by Universal. I, I noticed how unusual that was, but when I saw that it was being screened in, on film, I yes. was like, that makes sense. Because there's an element of like this celebration of art, whether it's in the independent form, but we're also in the unique mediums, because obviously AMCs are not always equipped with actual being able to project Correct. film on screen so i'm sure that that had its own pull to it as well yeah enzian has the last remaining 35 millimeter projector in something like a 75 or 80 yeah. mile radius yeah. of here so um universal was really excited about the idea that we could cool. show 35 millimeter and kind of asked us if we would be interested in playing christopher nolan's oppenheimer which we ran for i believe five straight weeks yeah. the first two first three of which we ran a hundred percent every single show in 35 millimeter which of course we have a projectionist but we couldn't make him work seven days a week <laughs> for three straight weeks yeah. because that's just frowned upon yeah i hear i hear <laughs> i hear i hear that's frowned upon uh so we had to call in a few favors with uh some film festival projectionists that we've used sure. in the past uh and bring in a couple of pinch hitters 
They're committed to really showing film in so many different ways, and even though they focus on independent movies, getting to actually show Christopher Nolan's incredible film Oppenheimer on film, that's quite a rare opportunity, and Enzian allowed that to happen. But what I appreciate about this theater is that, yeah, they're showing art house movies, Oscar contenders, classics, foreign cinema, documentaries, so much, but they also celebrate the quiet art form of weird movies, genre pictures, the forgotten classics, and they make an effort to show these lesser seen movies to people who care about them. Can you talk a little bit about Freaky Fridays, how they came to be, and, and what you enjoy about getting to do that that program? Sure. Well, first thing, I want to dispel a myth that yeah. all art house film programmers are film snobs <laughs> because all of us will talk, we will wax philosophical about Bergman and Fellini. Of course. All day long. But in our free time, all of us watch the most deranged <laughs> movies as a release. So yeah. everybody I know, man, woman, vegetable, whatever, that is programming movies, if you go to a film festival with them, all of us just live at the midnight screenings. To watch just absolute disaster pieces. Um, So Freaky Fridays is something that I had kind of in my dream scenario, which is that I wanted a program in the Enzian Theater that I could kind of solely control, which is sort of like an ask forgiveness, not permission program. So as opposed to kind of like bouncing ideas around or saying like, oh, this cult classic is going to be this, or this Saturday Night Night classic is going to be this, or even this Uncomfortable Brunch is going to be this. Freaky Fridays was just an idea that I came up with along with um, and kind of bounced repeatedly off of Paige Babbage, our development coordinator. What if I could play what I think people need to see, even though 99% of the people have never heard of the movie that I'm going to show them? And can I get away with a program where I can get people to come based solely on the track record of the program and not based on the film that's getting played in it? Um, so Freaky Fridays is an unhinged look at the world of genre cinema. Mm. Like it, there's no, no barriers, full stop, total insanity. And, um, yeah, like you said, we played Shima, which is a late 1960s, kind of what they would call a roughy, uh, which was a subgenre of nudie cutie movies at the time, which is the only, the only way you get nudism on screen right. prior to the destruction of the Hayes Code in 1967. Um, and it's shot in like rural Texas uh, by a guy who worked for the news. And it's a girl gang movie. Yeah. It's a lesbian girl gang movie yeah. um, where they kidnap a man and they hold him hostage. But they also like just beat the crap out of him. And, you know, there's a lot of like really nuts stuff that happens inside of it. And I, I think maybe 99.9% of the theater, I think one person raised their hand when yeah. I asked the 112, 13 people that were in the theater who'd seen the movie. I think one dude. Like in the front, he was like in the front row. He was like, yeah, I've seen that movie. I'm yeah, sitting real get, close. I gotta get close to it. I gotta get closer. It's a big screen. Um, but yeah, inside of that thing. And then the other thing that that program wants to do is that I really want to highlight the history of filmmaking in Florida. Because I think that people don't know or just for, have forgotten that regional filmmaking existed all over the country, especially in the 1950s when the drive-in circuits needed content and movies were moved around the country over years. Mm. Nowadays when you release a movie it's in 2,000 theaters in one day seven weeks later it's on every VOD platform. It used to be if you released a movie in a theater they only made a few prints of the thing and they would road show it. They would go around theater theater theater. Regular movies theatrical run lasted a year, year and a half, two years. Um, And drive-in movies were playing for four or five or six years as they just went for two weeks in Butte, Montana to two weeks to Des Moines, Iowa to two weeks to the middle of nowhere, Arkansas. Um, so what they did to fill in the gap time is that people made movies in the area and they would put them in those drive-ins. So we would do things like that. Um, 
and over the years we've played the goal of this program is like quarterly to kind of make something that was made in florida and you have films like herschel gordon lewis movies or doris wishman movies Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what Tim just said. He mentioned regional cinema. You've heard me say that a few times in this episode so far. Hollywood has obviously been a hub of filmmaking throughout the 20th century. So too has New York City. But as there became more movie theaters and the technology to make movies became more available to the public, independent cinema sprang up all over the country with filmmakers shooting cheaper cinema outside of the Hollywood bubble in order to fill out screens at movie theaters or to play late night showings at drive-ins. There would usually be an A movie, a higher quality movie, a marquee film that, that was being sent from a production studio. And then there would be the B movie, usually lesser in quality and sometimes filled locally or shot for cheap money. That is where the term B movie comes from. These regional pictures never really made big business. Very few would break through into larger box office returns, and those that did were an anomaly. For example, you have heard of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It is a regional film. It was shot in Texas for very little money, but it is a horror classic. It is, it is a franchise, and it was shot for nothing. I mean, it's crazy how much of an impact that movie has made when you consider that it was just filmed with some people in Texas in the middle of nowhere. I mean, that is the power of regional filmmaking. But one such regional filmmaker that broke through was also a man who we talked about last season of Wait Fright Minutes, the strange and brilliant Herschel Gordon Lewis, the godfather of gore, who made what's called splatter pictures, very goofy and very gory horror movies that pretty much redefined horror cinema in the 60s. Give that episode from last season a listen. We had a great time, but H.G. Lewis filmed many of his movies, including his movies set at nudist camps here in Florida. He filmed those movies in Florida, whether they were goofy nudist movies or splatter horror movies. He took them here in Florida, and so much of our history related to that comes from Herschel Gordon Lewis and his peers. He wasn't alone. He wasn't the only regional Florida filmmaker. More on that. Tim's going to tell us more about that, but Let's talk more about that independent cinema movement of regional filmmaking back in the day. Well, can you talk a little bit about that that regional filmmaking in Florida, a little bit about a little bit more in depth on that history? Yeah, look, it, just like today, horror movies sell. Yeah, they're they're the, they're nevergreen. They're the never don't make money genre of movies. Like four hour art house films in French don't necessarily always make money. You know, two hundred ninety million dollar tentpole summer movies that tank don't necessarily make money but you know million dollar horror films make a lot of money um and back in the day these guys were making movies for fifty thousand yeah. dollars um, and then they were running them around on road shows and kind of the great example movie of that which is untestable is that the texas chainsaw massacre is a regional horror movie it's right. made outside of austin texas it's made for no money it's run around on theater circuits and drive-ins ultimately it's kind of like picked up by the mob it's run around and nobody knows how much the Texas Chainsaw Massacre really made, but they speculate it maybe it made as much as $500 million, of which none of the calculable box office gross exists. Yeah. Um, so that's done here in um, Miami. The two primary people that are working down there are Herschel Gordon Lewis, uh, who's not from Florida, but relocates here as well um, in the 1950s. And Doris Wishman, who's from the New York area, who also relocates here in the 1950s. And they mostly moved here to make nudist camp movies because Florida had the largest concentration of nudist colonies. Mm. Um, 
anywhere inside of the United States because it's Florida. It, there's beaches. It's reasonably warm. <laughs> I don't know if you want to get mosquito bites necessarily in some areas of no. your body, but it didn't seem to bother anybody. And uh, there was this, uh, this New York State Supreme Court ruling that happened that allowed nudist camp movies to appear as educational because they were backed by the, I think it's called the National Sunbathing Association uh, for the health benefits sure. of, um, the health benefits, but not the, oh, you're going to get skin cancer vibe of full sun exposure is yeah. good for you. Uh, and so they're wildly non-sexual, but obviously the whole reason that they were made was for titillation. Mm. Uh, but they are almost quaint uh, to a degree considering that everybody's naked in all the movies. Yep. So they, that's kind of where everything starts in Florida. And then kind of what you have happening over the years is that eventually Hersh Gordon Lewis makes Blood Feast and it's sort of considered the first gore film. Mm. So the first film that is just bloody for the sake of being bloody. Now by today's standards, like Saw 10, it's not even remotely <laughs> bloody and yeah. everything looks like Nestle Strawberry Quick. Yeah. That they're the pouring tongue on is people. really killer in that movie. It's so funny. I and they got it. all of that from a butcher shop. I know. I love it. I um, love it so much. So that expands out, and when these movies are successful, success begets success. Right. So Blood Feast is an absolute monster hit. Doris Wishman's movies are monster hits, and so more people start coming down to Florida um, and making movies. And then you kind of get these little regional pockets of cinema that occur. Orlando has a history with film. There were silent films being shot here mm -hmm. in the 1920s, most, I think almost every one of which is completely lost. Yeah. Uh, Beecham Theater in downtown was a movie theater. Mm. Um, you can Google pictures of massive, huge Hollywood premiere movies that are playing at the Beecham Theater. Um, and then you have Jacksonville, and you really have Tampa. Tim tells me about all these different cities in Florida with these small bubbles of, of historic filmmaking throughout the years. And though I've heard inklings about it, it, it's still going on. I mean, he told me there's a movie coming out this year called The Artifice Girl that was filmed in Jacksonville. Regional filmmaking goes back decades and is still happening right now. It's what I love about horror. It's like a rabbit hole that you can just fall into and, and, and keep finding new things inside. And it seems like Florida is just as much a part of that. No surprise, really. There's always something to learn, especially when you consider the gold movie that Tim tells me about that I have now watched. I'll, I'll let Tim describe it to you. To me, arguably one of the most Florida movies that is ever is the, was the third or fourth thing that we played when we launched Freaky Fridays, which I knew when I launched Freaky Fridays, like, I need this to be a movie, but I need it to be, I need to ease people into it a little bit. So, and then I played William Griffey's Sting of Death. Okay. So, Bill Griffey is a Florida-based filmmaker. He's been here his entire life. Uh, he's in his late 80s, I believe, right now. Uh, and I believe he still lives just outside of somewhere between, like, Lauderdale and Miami. Uh, and he's an incredible director. He was the second unit director on James Bond movies, shooting the underwater okay. sequences, uh, especially stuff with sharks. But he made a film called Sting of Death, which he got Neil Sedaka to do the music for. Quick jump in here. Neil Sedaka is a singer-songwriter who wrote such classics as The Lion Sleeps Tonight and Love Will Keep Us Together. He is great. Look him up. He's a hugely prolific songwriter, and it is genuinely surprising that Neil had anything to do with this movie. Back to Tim. I have no idea how. Ow. It's all shot at a house in the Everglades, and it is about a um, uh, a Portuguese man of war slash jellyfish monster. He calls it a jellyfish. It's got to be a Portuguese man of war sure. because of what it's supposed to be. But it is basically a dude in a black rubber dive suit with rubber hoses hanging all off of him and a garbage bag on his head that was powered by a little vacuum -y thing 
that he wore on his back that you kind of can't see. He's wearing neoprene gloves, but not well, so you can see his skin and arms through them. Uh, oh, and man. it's basically a play almost like on a beach party movie, which is yeah. teens go to the beach and they dance. Yeah. It's got a lot of like cinematography, which is shot at like butt level <laughs> well, um, of people just gyrating to Neil Sedaka, which I guess you can do. Um, in the Everglades, and then it's intercut with these attacks, which are supposedly being taking place in a pool, even though they were shot in a spring. And the spring is actually in Ocala that they shot them in. Um, and that's pretty obvious because a pool is crystal clear yeah. and it doesn't have sand and, and plants algae, on yeah. the bottom of it. <laughs> but the intercuts of the girls jumping around in the pool is a guy swimming through the springs oh, with plants awesome. and algae. And, and I would argue the movie is actually wildly entertaining, a work of genius. You could find the trailer for a re restoration that they did at Fantasia Film Festival in Canada a few years ago online and if you're not sold by the trailer then really you don't have the fun gene. <laughs> yeah that's right. Well, let me tell you, I had the pleasure of watching Sting of Death, which opens with a Florida radio station detailing the strange monster that is bothering fishermen out near the Everglades National Park. And then a woman is attacked by the monster not one minute later. Think Jaws if instead of John Williams' iconic score and a terrifying beast in the dark, the music was actually charming tropical vacation music, and the monster was a guy in a wetsuit with some stuff attached to it. It looks, honestly gorgeous it's like blue and green and vibrant it looks amazing it's all shiny gloriously floridian in my opinion if not for the monster plot that opens the movie and follows throughout it would look like those tourism movies that they made in the 60s all saturated colors and local style it has that exact aesthetic to it except it's a monster movie i gotta tell you I love this movie. It's colorful and dated in the most wonderful way. Beautiful Florida sunshine shining on palm trees and a big goofy monster lurking in the swamp. It's an actual Florida horror movie filmed in Florida. Impossible for me to not love. Tim loves those movies too, and he believes that showing forgotten weird genre trashed pieces to the local audience is important. One of the things that I kind of express in this program, and we do it in a lot of our programs actually as well, is that one thing we you, you kind of blank, we blanketly say all the time is you can't manufacture camp. Mm. You can try mm. to manufacture camp, but it's always hollow. It's always soulless. You have to have pure drive and maybe not pure talent yeah. to achieve the room. Like if you could try to go make. Tommy Wiseau's The Room, yeah. but you can't make no. Tommy Wiseau's The Room because to do that, you have to believe that what you're making is a masterpiece. Yes, yeah. you have to trust that what you're making is quality, so, and you just don't have the ability to... A <laughs> lot of these films we talk about in regional cinema, like the Doris Wishman's or the David Friedman films or the Hershey Gordon Lewis movies or Bill Graffay's films, is that they... They were cash grab movies. They made them because they knew they could make them cheap, they knew they had a direct market for them, and they knew that they could make money on them. However, they weren't cheap in the standard of today making a cheap movie. So most of them, for better or worse, were putting everything they had on the line to make these films. If you, know, you lost $50,000 in 1954, you were in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Uh, if you lose $50,000 today, you're in a bad place yeah. for sure. But like, you absolutely weren't talking about like, that's, you know, tw you know, twice the price of my house, mm. you know, in, in 1954. So maybe not in Miami, but you know, <laughs> in the outskirts. Um, I think my grandparents got their house in 1950 for $5,000 in Louisville, <laughs> Kentucky. 
So, um, the thing is that, like, there is passion behind it, even though they didn't have the money or the resources to pull them off. And that's why something like Sting of Death or even, like, Cursed Death of Tartu that he made because they still had extra film. And we're like, we could shoot another movie on a double bill because they want a double bill. Yeah. So we'll make the movie in seven days. We don't have a script at all. Let's just go do it. Um, they did those things. Like, you just you can't make Plan 9 from Outer Space today. In fact, I watch filmmakers every year make short films that try to do basically that. And some are not so unoriginal, they just call it Plan 10 from Outer Space. Which yeah. I believe I've seen at least two to three movies that have been called that over a decade or so. Yeah. Um, you just can't do it because you have to believe fully that what you're doing is the best thing that you could possibly do. And then there's that karmic magic that you can't put your finger on that also then makes it hit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I say a lot when we do this, which is that like these movies that are made in Florida, some of them are amazing. And some of them are completely nuts. And that's sort of what I love about them. I also think Florida is, once again, it's still kind of the wild west or the mm. wild south of... <laughs> America, which is that crap happens here that does not happen in reasonably normal other parts of the country. We live in a strange place, there's no denying it, and I think we should all be grateful to live in a world where this specific era of Florida is celebrated in these bizarre horror movies from this era. When they're filmed in Florida, they feel like Florida. Besides the fact that there's blood and monsters and all this gore and ridiculousness, it feels like our weird culture from the 60s is being represented on screen. They reflect who we are. There is, of course, no giant humanoid jellyfish stalking the waterways of Florida, but that is the glory of horror movies. Even in the goofiest 1960s camp horror movie, it's always the question, what if there was? I think a lot of people, like myself, find these crappy horror movies to be weirdly comforting. They, they're relaxing and, and cozy in a way that is impossible to describe. And there is nothing more cozy than seeing Florida in this era with also a monster movie layered into it. It makes me feel like home. Before we go, I'd be remiss to talk about Enzian in Orlando without talking about the hugely important yearly event that occurs there, the Florida Film Festival. Yeah, the Florida Film Festival is the biggest part of my day-to-day -day life. It's mm -hmm. nine plus months of my entire job, and it's probably 50 hours a week minimum yeah. on average of work um, through the entire thing and up to 90 at some points. Yeah. Um, it's Oscar accredited in all three shorts categories, which is a huge deal. It's the only festival in the state where if you win the Grand Jury Award, in one now live action shorts, animated shorts, documentary shorts, your film is qualified to be nominated for the Academy Award Pretty in the awesome. following year. Uh, it's been going now for 33 years. Um, and it was, once again, it was started because essentially at the time there were only two other film festivals in the state, which was the Miami Film Festival and Fort Lauderdale. And it felt like there needed to be one. And so they started it up in the early 1990s, and it's had a succession of incredible filmmakers that have played here very, very early on in their careers. People have gone on to make multi-million dollar massive blockbusters. Uh, but it's a 10-day celebration. It takes place every year in April. And uh, yes, submissions are open right now. I'm buried underwater in them. We play about 180 films, uh, usually about 50 features, about 130 shorts. 
there is something for everyone and probably every film is not for everybody. Mm. Um, it covers the ground from, you know, incredible Cannes Award winning international feature films to, you know, a feature film directed by a UCF MFA graduate she made for, I think, $10,000. That's absolutely stunning. Probably one of some of the best cinematography in the entire film festival. Belonged to a locally shot 90-minute $10,000 movie put together through UCF's master's program. Um, It's broad. The representation is incredible. It's always over 50% female filmmakers, tons of BIPOC filmmakers, tons and tons and tons of LGBTQIA content in it um as well it, I mean, it's something that i'm so proud of it's because and if i wasn't i don't think i could survive yeah because it is an unbelievable time suck like to put it together and the team of people that do it is woefully tiny yeah like the team running the entire film festival is under 10 people yeah. and the people running the entire selections of the film festival final selections is under 20 wow. so it gets about three thousand submissions a year and uh it's 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 amazing. Like I, I can't speak highly enough about it, and I think that people are intimidated by film festivals in general mm-hmm. um, because there's so much to see. But everybody who works here is so knowledgeable about the content of it, and so friendly and outgoing, and so excited to share stuff with you. That like just walk on campus, just come to the theater and just soak it in. Pick a pick a movie. Pick any movie. I promise you, it's got merit. Yeah. Like the the selection process was brutal. Yeah. To get those three thousand films down to those hundred and eighty movies. So trust me when I tell you that you know you may not love it, you might even hate it, but at the end of the day, there it, it's saying something really wildly unique, and we're very 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 proud of that. And we had over two hundred filmmakers attend last year. So your chance to be just hanging out at the bar talking to the person who made the movie are insanely high. And the odds of that person winning an Oscar 10 years from now are also pretty solid, so snap some photos. <laughs> like Because, like, I mean, I went to film festivals and had beers with Greta Gerwig in, like, oh. 2006, yeah. and I can't even find the photos of it. But when Barbie hit, like, a, a billion dollars, my friend Trevor was like, here's a drunk picture of me and Greta Gerwig hanging out in You're Austin, like, Texas. And I was like, I can't find mine. <laughs> Um, you don't know who's right. going to be there, and those people have all been here. And yeah, every year we have a big celebrity that comes in, like you know John Cusack or Susan Sarandon or yeah. Richard Dreyfuss or William Shatner. <laughs> Come on, William Shatner. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's those independent filmmakers that are running around on the circuit um, that are making their names for themselves now. I mean, some of those people are going to be absolutely massive in the future. It's pretty cool and very hipster-esque to get in on the ground floor. Yeah, you can really, you can, you can wear it as a badge of honor. Yeah, I mean, you get, you get to legitimately say, I saw that before other people saw that, as, and not be, like, BSing everyone. I will be there this upcoming spring, ready to celebrate Florida cinema at my favorite theater in town. So, hopefully, I'll see you there. Maybe we can watch a movie at the Enzian together. We can discover something new. Because whether it's a hugely important piece of independent foreign cinema or a completely ridiculous and charming horror masterpiece, there is always something to discover. And that, to me, is what Enzian is all about. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait Fright Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. 
If you enjoy the show, please consider sharing the show on Instagram or Facebook at WFM Pod. You can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. If you follow the show on Instagram, I am looking for you to share your spooky Florida stories with me. I will put up a thing on my Instagram story where you can send them directly to me. I would love to share with your permission your scary story on the show or email it to me at WFMPod at gmail.com. You can also leave a review for the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It would mean a lot to me if you did. So tell me what you like about the show. Tell me how much you're enjoying Wait Frightened Minutes because I know I am enjoying it immensely. Thank you. Thank you to Tim Anderson for taking the time to chat with me. I will include a link. Enzian is doing horror movies throughout the rest of October. I talked a little bit about that with Tim. I've included a link in the episode description so you can go and see more about what Enzian is screening to celebrate Halloween. Go pay them a visit. Enzian is a wonderful place to spend an evening. Thank you again to Tim. All right, that is it for me this week. Next week, I am very, very excited about it. We are going to be talking with an expert who discovered a missing ship that was thought lost in the Bermuda Triangle. We are talking about lost ships and the incredible myth of that mysterious body of water just off our coasts. I will be back next week for the next episode of Wait Fright Minutes. Until then, be good to yourself. Be good to others. Drink more water. Go Gator and muddy the water and have a very happy October.